First off, Michael, happy new year to you. Yeah, happy 2024. It's kind of crazy. It's the year 2024, but I don't know, I guess here we are. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're in the future now. I, when I was a kid, <laughs> if I heard 2024, like definitely would be on hoverboards and, you know, flying cars and all that. Some of that exists now. So I yeah. don't know. I, yeah, I guess yeah. the future is right now, but <laughs> uh, no, but we have a brand new episode that I know the holidays kind of revisited some of our favorite episodes, but we have a great episode lined up for today and also trying some new things, right? That's right. Something new this year. In addition to the product storytelling you've come to expect, we're adding a new segment. We're calling it Product News. Um, at the end or maybe the beginning of every episode, we're going to cover some of the latest stories happening in our world, which very well may be important to you as a product person or an entrepreneur. It, it could be product news. It could be news about the broader tech ecosystem. Um, regardless, we'll be digging into the things that we think you're going to care about. That's right. So you've got to tune in every week to get caught up. Uh, and now no need to skim, you know, The Verge, TechCrunch, <laughs> Forbes, wherever you get your tech news. We're going to be going through that from a product angle. So every single week, we've got you covered here. That's right. So after that segment, we've got a guest that you recently interviewed, Mike. Is that right? Yeah, for today, actually two guests. Um, and I'm gonna give you a little bit of a hint as far as who they may be. Mm. Um, uh, let me ask you this. If we were to look back at the last few years and identify an area within the world of product management that we've just seen a ton of growth, growth in the amount of attention given, number of roles added, level of importance overall, what area might you think that would be? Well, maybe AI? That's a good guess, right? That's true. All of that has definitely exploded over the last, especially the last year, definitely the last uh, couple of years. If it's not AI, what other area might you pick? <laughs> All right. So if it's just the world of product, maybe like product operations, that would certainly be up there. Definitely a newer topic for orgs. Yeah. And you got it there. That's actually the topic that I thought we could focus on for today. I had a chance to sit down with Melissa Perry and Denise Tillis, uh, both of whom recently co-authored the book, Product Operations, How Successful Companies Build Product at Scale. Now, Melissa, of course, was the author of Escaping the Build Trap, one of the go-to product books, I would say, uh, that's out mm -hmm. there. And I'm pretty sure this new book is going to end up being the primer on product operations. Well, I wouldn't be surprised at that either. Melissa, as you mentioned, she's been an author. She's also a product leader, a coach. She's the founder of Product Institute, Products Labs, uh, as well as the CPO Accelerator. And then there's Denise Tillis. She's got a very similar background. She's a product leader as well. She also plays the role of coach and consultant to software companies through her company, Grocket. She's also collaborated with Melissa quite a bit, and now they've written this book together. That's right. So there's a lot to get into here with Denise and Melissa, but first we're gonna get into some product news. All of that right after we roll this intro. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We're your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. 
HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So new year, new segment. Is that right, Michael? Yeah. Yeah. Let's figure we try out something new. Um, The news and and kind of the product world is always something that I think we're both keeping up on, but it's not always something we talked about in detail on the show. And I thought there was a couple stories that would be really relatable to product folks and that that relate directly to to what we're building. So um, I wanted to take you through kind of three stories here, Mike, get your take on them. And then we'll get into that interview with Melissa Perry. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. So the first story I wanted to talk about was Envision. Envision actually shutting down. Envision was a product. It was really geared towards designers. But I think as product folks, 
We've spent a lot of time in Envision if you've been working in product over the last decade. Um, Envision is a, is a prominent UX design company and it announced that at the end of 2024, it's gonna be shutting down. Their new CEO, Michael Schenkman, um, said there's no immediate changes, but uh, the company has basically decided to shutter its doors after they sold off uh, Freehand, which is kind of their collaboration product to Miro. Now, Mike, have you, what's your experience with Envision been over the years? Yeah, I mean, I've used Envision in the past. We've had speakers from Envision at our conference industry. Actually, um, Brent Toretsky, who uh, now is a product executive at Peloton, when I first met Brent, he was at Envision. And so um, what I know about it is it had recruited a lot of amazing product people over the years. Uh, the talent there was definitely at a very high level. Um, so I know when I first saw the news, I was definitely taken back. Um, but there were some things that have happened over the last few years that maybe a little bit of foreshadowing that sort of led to this moment. So it's one of those things where maybe it's a surprise, but maybe it's also not a surprise. Maybe it's something that some people would have seen coming. Yeah, I, I think uh, over the last two years, at least, um, it, it was kind of eminent. I, I know like there was the last raise, they were valued at over two billion. They went hard after what they called studio at the time, which was kind of their Figma equivalent where, you know, it was uh, in the browser, prototyping, lots of animation, but they can never really get it to market. And I, I remember the whole industry was really waiting for them to, to announce this. And six months would go by, a year would go by, and we'd get these kind of demo videos, but they never actually got the product into the hands of its users beyond kind of a beta phase. And that really felt like the beginning of the end for the company. And that was probably three or four years ago. I don't think they were ever really able to find their footing after that. Yeah, I, you know, when I heard the news, it was actually from Jason Fried of mm. 37 Signals and Basecamp fame. He had written about it on X, you know, Twitter, whatever we're <laughs> calling it these days, um, you know, put it out there and, and then kind of shared the story. And there were some people that were, you know, shocked. And he said, well, what? I'm not really so sure why we should be shocked, right? Like this is no different than a laundromat down the street. Laundromat opens up. If it has a good business and a good business model that works, it stays in business. If it doesn't have a business model that works, it goes out of business, right? So yeah, they've raised a ton of money, but I guess at the end of the day, you know, did, did they have the uh, economics working in their favor? And, and if the answer is no, you can only raise so much money so many times before you're gonna end up having to, to close up shop, especially these days, right? Like we're in this weird time uh, as far as the market goes where, you know, this isn't, 2020, 2021, uh, you know, the post COVID fundraising mode where, where it was like free money, right? Like we're, we're out of that mode. Like I'm hearing VCs talk about like, Hey, you should really get to profitability. I never heard VCs talk about profitability before, but if you're not at that point now, you're, you're probably not going to go raise this other massive round to, to hopefully, you know, find your way there in the next year or two. So yeah, maybe not so surprising, or at least maybe we shouldn't be so surprised. Yeah, it, it felt like they had their shot with the product. They focused way too much on the hype and the marketing. And then 2023 kind of hit them and it, and it seemed to hit them hard. I think they knew they weren't going to be able to raise another round and instead kind of sold off their flagship product and decided to shut the rest down. 
Um, and that kind of brings me to our our next uh, story here, which was yesterday is when I started seeing this pop up on uh, Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. But um, pitch, right? The 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 really hyped um, uh, slide builder, right? So kind of AI powered really high fidelity design. Um, they raised a, a ton of money. Um, they raised over $130 million. And yesterday they announced that their CEO, Kristen Reber, who uh, is former um, Wonderlist, um, he's stepping away. Their CTO is stepping into the CEO role and they're reducing uh, their workforce by two thirds. So they're going from 120 employees down to about 40. Um, and again, it's that same story. They're prioritizing profitability in organic growth, which is something we've never really seen companies be asked to do who have raised this kind of funding. Yeah, It. Uh, by the way, I'm all about getting profitable as a business, right? Yeah. Like I, I've gone in the past, you know, the route of raising money from venture investors and angel investors, VCs, you know, they, they want growth, or at least at that time, like that's what they were talking about growth. You know, I run a bootstrap company now at Product <laughs> Collective. Like we, we can only exist if we're profitable, right? If we're bringing in more money than we're spending. So it's definitely not that, that I would take issue with. But they they did raise a ton of money, hired a ton of people, and and yeah, their CEO saying, hey, you know, we we still generate over four million euro, I think it is, yep. in annual recurring revenue, which sounds great. But of course, when you've raised one hundred and thirty million dollars, now to be fair, um, from what I've heard, it, it's not as if they've spent one hundred and thirty million dollars. It, right. Most of that is is going to be returned back to investors now, and so it's more of a strategic shift on their end and. You know, when I see things like this happen, I automatically feel for the people that are there because now these are people that don't have jobs and are looking for jobs in a maybe a tougher market, tougher time of year um, to look for a job to. Um, but is it the right thing to do as a business to maybe, you know, get as lean as possible and maybe take a different approach than the sort of, you know, go hard growth at all costs venture approach? I mean, for that business, like I'm not, I can't say that it isn't the right way to go, right? Like I'm not in that business. It's certainly, it, we're starting to see a shift in the mindset of a lot of software companies though, which I think is really interesting. And I think the the important takeaway for, for product folks out there that are working in organizations like this who have been funded through VC capital is to get aligned with their CEO and make sure that the plans that they have for this year or even just this quarter align with where the company wants to go. And that may have shifted. That may have shifted from 2023 into 2024. Um, they may have been going after metrics that would have gotten them their next funding round. And now maybe the CEO is thinking, I might not have a next funding round for another year or two. How do we cut back? How do we focus on profitability? It's better to get ahead of that now than wait for an event like this and kind of get caught off guard where now all of a sudden you have to throw out all your plans and redesign your entire strategy for the year. So I think these are conversations that if your company hasn't gone through a downsize like this, maybe you're in kind of the same boat, have those conversations early and find out where does your company want to go and where do they need to go in order to stay alive. Yeah. And often too, right? Yeah. Like this isn't a single conversation you have at the end of the year when you're building out a product roadmap for the next year. 
These are ongoing conversations. Things change so quickly. You know, I've seen companies that, well, again, company, very companies we're talking about, they raise a ton of money. It's not that long after they've raised that amount of money where they're going back to the drawing board and saying, actually, we should be focusing on profitability. It's not like it took them years after their last fundraise to get to this point. So yeah, it's important to have those conversations, but make sure you're revisiting those conversations often. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so last topic I wanted to cover today was I was reading through a lot of 2024 trend and prediction articles I think we're all inundated with right now, but one interesting kind of trend that I saw in all of them was kind of the talking about the evolution of the product management and really product leadership roles, specifically the emergence of this chief product and technology officer, uh, which I, I found quite interesting. Generally, we've been seeing a CPO and a CTO or one or the other, uh, but now we're being asked to have both at the top, um, one person kind of embodying both the product and the technology. What did you think about this, Mike? What, what, what kind of uh, shifts do you think this will cause internally at companies? Well, I think it's really hard to find the right person that is the best at technology and product. Like these are actually two different things, right? Yeah. So, it, and it's possible that you can have some amazing unicorn type person that is product minded and tech minded. When I talk about there being a difference, it's, you know, I've worked with great CTOs in the past. They're deep into the internal workings of the technology. They're they're deep into, you know, what does dev the devs DevOps strategy, you know, what that what is that yeah. going to look like? Um, it's different than sort of the proactive product building. Now, some of those people are adept at both of those things. But I actually think it's kind of rare to find that person that is amazing at both of those things. So I don't know. I don't I don't know if these are expectations that um, maybe are, you know, we're, we're going to set these big expectations and hope to find these people that could be managing both. And and, you know, by the way, we're going to trim the teams now to be a smaller, right. more condensed team. That's product and technology like that's all great as we're trying to get profitable. But you, you, what it looks like on paper and what it looks like in reality, I think those could be two different things. Yeah, I agree. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be difficult, and and I don't think there's gonna be anyone that is besides maybe a couple unicorns that is gonna be the perfect fit here. I know at Dribble, um, I set up the product org to have the CPO um, that was myself kind of oversee both the product and the tech company, but I had a really strong. VP of technology to kind of um, balance out some of the the product and tech work that needed to be done. Um, I myself, I don't know if I would have been the best CPTO, um, but I do agree that having one at the top and one focal point with kind of having technology and product under one org is probably the future and it makes things a lot easier. We're all working on the same product, but I agree that to have one person embody both the product and the technology wholly, I think it's gonna be a tall ask, but I also think that is where the market is going is consolidation. We're all gonna have to wear more hats at every level. We're gonna be asked to do a lot more with the same amount of time. And so I, I think it's very indicative. I'm very curious how it actually plays out. So, um, all right, well, let's take a quick break here and then we'll be back with our interview with Melissa Perry and Denise Tillis. This episode is brought to you by Yahoo Finance. 
Wouldn't it be great if you could see all of your investment and retirement accounts in one place? With Yahoo Finance, you can consolidate your views with multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Honestly, this has been a lifesaver for me. I've used Yahoo Finance to consolidate all of my various 401k and investment accounts so I can see everything all in one place. And it makes it incredibly easy to manage. So if you're struggling with that, check out Yahoo Finance. For over 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart a great investor. And that's how Yahoo Finance ensures that you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. So go to yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. So product operations, that's the topic of the day, is it? Yeah, and it seems like it's been the topic of the last few years, right? I mean, rewind, what, five years ago? And we really weren't hearing people talk about product operations. But now it's very much a segment of product management. Seems to sort of be in vogue right now. Yeah, especially for these larger scaled up products and companies, right? Yeah, for sure. So before we go into Melissa and Denise and get into the details of your conversation, we should probably start from scratch and explain what product operations actually is, don't you think? Yeah, that's totally fair. And I'll start with a basic definition. And I'm going to quote this from an ebook called The Rise of Product Ops. Um, this is a much smaller ebook uh, guide, maybe we'll call it, compared to what Melissa and Denise wrote. But it's one that Product Collective uh, collaborated with Pendo on a few years back. And at the definition level, at its core, product ops is the intersection of product, including product design, uh, also engineering, customer success. It exists to support the R&D team and their go-to-market counterpoints to improve alignment, communication, and processes around product development, launch, and iteration. And would you say that's in line with how Melissa and Denise would define product operations? I, I would say so. Let's cut to Melissa right here for her definition. Product operations is really the enabling function for product management. And what it does is it helps to arm our product teams with the right data and the right inputs to be able to make strategic decisions. And then also with uh, a good guideline about how do we want to run governance and process to help make our product management team run smoothly. So it really looks at those facets. And why it's becoming important is We've got a lot more product managers out there in the world, and a lot of companies are finally realizing that it's a, it's a very, very critical function. Um, so just like any other department that is a huge you know, part of the way that you run your business, you want to make sure that the organization is run smoothly. 
And as we get more and more product managers in these organizations, they're finding out that it's not just enough to have skilled product managers, which is definitely part one. If you don't have skilled product managers, none of this applies. But it's also about giving them the ability to go out and do their jobs well. So product operations kind of wraps around them and gives them the tools that they need to be able to go out and actually execute. And Denise adds a little bit more right here. It's really about, you know, we say this in the book, but it's about allowing your product managers to do what we hired them for, right? So um, company growth, you know, uh, helping customers um, in terms of their problems, um, thinking about um, really making sure that the product managers have everything they need to make faster and better quality decisions. So when you're sharing these definitions, it makes it sound like the role of product operations is really to help support and enable product managers so they can focus on the core of their job even more. Would that be right? Yeah, I think that pretty much nails it. I mean, Denise went further on enablement as a key theme of product ops, and she talks more about that right here. It's really about the enablement. So in the the class that we offer, the product operations masterclass, that's a big um, aspect that we really emphasize. Like, here's what the product manager does. You're making, um, you know, thinking about the strategy, product operations partners with the product managers in terms of making sure they have all of the inputs they need to formulate that strategy. So product managers make the decisions, product operations enables it. It's a partnership. Um, so there's no usurping. And it, when it's done well, it's really a beautiful thing because the folks that are doing the enablement are really passionate about that. And the product managers they're working with are actually getting to what they really want to be doing and not writing SQL scripts just to pull data out, right? They're not being sort of gold on that or at the end of the year, you know, as they're talking to their manager, well, I wrote, you know, 10 scripts for that. Cool, but what did you do with it? So we're getting them away from those types of tactical uh processes and getting them into what they really want to be doing, what they were hired for. What's kind of fascinating is that this role of product operations, it sounds like something that maybe even it's necessary, especially at the stage of company where things are really scaling. Yet again, the function and the role, it's relatively new. It almost makes you wonder how things were functioning before it existed. Like 15 years ago, there were no product operations managers and companies still survive. So what's changed? Well, maybe nothing's changed. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I mean by that is the actual functions, they did exist 15 years ago. It's just now we have a different name for it. And mm. now we're more organized about how the work's being done and who on our team is doing that. Yeah, no, no I, I think I see what you're saying. Yeah. D Denise actually talks about that. The fact that all of this, it's new, but it's not so new uh, right here. I probably was one of the earlier folks with product ops, but didn't realize that's what it was. Um, I was working with a company that was had a, a big presence in Cleveland, actually, Cision. Um, and um, when I was hired there, my boss, the SVP of product, was like, maybe we should have like a product data analyst. I'm like, I I've, whoa, okay, that's great. And he's like, it would help our product level up our product practices. So I was totally on board. And we were going to hire sort of an, an individual contributor. We ended up hiring this amazing vice president, a little bit more mature and experienced. And then she brought on a UX researcher and another sort of product analyst. And the insights they were able to sort of uncover and sort of at more objective level, you're so close to the product. Sometimes it's hard to see. So it was a partner in that. 
um, was amazing. And we found a couple of opportunities to generate a million dollars with this product that was back of, you know, the, the, the pants, so to speak, in your pocket. So back pocket. So after that, I was pretty sold, but that was really steeped in the quantitative first pillar of product operations, the business and data insights, the qualitative we had a little bit of, and that was hard to get at scale because we had a lot of product managers and the, the process and practice as the operating model, we certainly hadn't even scratched the surface. That was my first experience and that was around 2014, but we didn't call it that. So rewinding back 10 years, 2014, yes, product operations existed, just that nobody was really calling it product operations, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, in the early days of software, nobody was calling it product management either, right? So I can relate here. Yeah, but now today, product operations, it's its in our vernacular as product people. And as Denise reminded us, it's about enabling product managers to do their job even better. But it's especially important for products once they reach that scale. And we talk about scale. Are we talking about it in terms of product people on the team or like data that our product collects? Yes, all of the above. It's all okay. of those things, right? All right. Yeah, yeah, I got it. <laughs> I mean, Melissa, uh, you know, she gets into how product operations becomes more critical at that scale stage. And yeah, I should just let you listen to what Melissa has to say here. When I was leading the transformation at Athena Health, uh, we had 350 product managers um, across, you know, six different product lines. And we were trying to figure out how to bring them together to provide some kind of consistency and arm them with the ability to do their jobs well. And that was that was kind of my role was to look across it, one, train them up, make sure they could do product management well. And then once we got to the point where they could do product management well, it was like, okay, what's what are the blockers though enabling this to scale to the rest of the organization? It's not just that, you know, my product managers can go out and do user stories and, you know, talk to customers well and run experiments. Like what's going to bring that together to make sure the company is successful? And that's where product operations came in and where we we started to implement it. Um, and we realized that we needed more uh, things out there to make sure that everybody was doing product management consistently, consistently in a way that like leveled it up in the organization, not in a way that like provided more process or overhead, but um, in a way where leaders could get the insights they needed to make their decisions. Um, executives could get those insights as well about what product management was doing and make investment decisions off of it. And people wanted to know what to expect, you know, if they change from one team to another. And then we also had a, a data issue where we had to make sure that people could get the information out of data. So when we, you know, were doing it at that level, we just ran into, you know, parts of things that were not just skill related. And that's where that kind of scale comes in. And it's very hard to as a leader, right, to oversee dozens or hundreds of product managers and have insights into what is happening in my strategy, um, how do I react to it, how do I make sure we're on the right path. And those are things that product operations can enable for leaders. And it also brings awareness to the rest of the organization about what's happening, what's going on in ways that make us all work a little smoothly together. Also with larger organizations, you have more departments usually, right? So now it's like, hey, Product managers have to work with sales. They have to work with marketing. They have to work with that. We want to make sure that we know where the, well, those people, let's put it this way. Sales wants to know where they can get plugged in in the product lifecycle, right? One thing I hear from product managers all the time is sales comes over, drops a bomb on us, tells us that we need to build this feature all the time, tells us we need to do it by this date. 
you go to sales, you ask them, why do you do that? They're like, where else am I supposed to go? Like, how am I supposed to make sure that they're hearing what I hear from the customers, right? How am I supposed to advocate for things that I know will close deals? So you run into some of these frictions between the departments if they don't know how to work with product management and there's no consistency for that across the organization. So that also is something that product ops helps with. It makes sure that we're all working together around a common goal towards these outcomes. And it's not just like every team is reinventing the wheel and spending so much time on making their own processes and their own programs, um, which is kind of, and not concentrating on the strategic work, right? Not concentrating on the things that they actually have to do. So that's what I think really makes product ops unlock you for scale, right? You get to a point, and I, I work with a lot of organizations and I see this, where if you've got 4,000 product teams and they're all working differently, you're not going to get the outcomes you want from a product development standpoint, not even like from a process standpoint, from like shipping things to your customers because it's going to break down along the way somewhere, you know, it could be in getting data, it could break down in talking to customers, it could be breaking down on alignment across all of those teams working towards the strategy. So it's really a critical function to make sure that we scale well and we're scaling in a focused way towards our overall goals. Okay, let's break here and we'll finish up learning from Melissa and Denise about product operations right after hearing from our sponsors. Before the break, we were learning about product operations from Melissa Perry and Denise Tillis, co-authors of the brand new book, Product Operations, How Successful Companies Build Better Products at Scale. We talked about what product operations is, why it's helpful. But how do companies start implementing product operations practices and where is this all going? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I know Melissa and Denise, they've put some thought into this. Yeah, for sure. I asked them for those that are out there hearing all of this and are curious, and maybe they feel like their organization is is ready to put some of this into practice, right? Where do they even start? And so Denise answers that right here. In the book, um, we wanted to be really um, certain that we included, you know, sort of core you know, learnings and learning objectives about product operations, but layered with um, real life use cases and a lot of feedback and inputs from folks in the field, as well as this fictitious, you know, company and CPO that we sort of followed throughout. So sort of a three layered type of approach. But in speaking with the number of companies and the folks, the practitioners that are doing it really well, I'm sure you've heard of Blake Samick. You know, he started product ops at Uber in 2015. I was just checking. I'm like, so he's there pretty early too. Um, and then introduced it at Stripe. And now he's at OpenAI. But we spoke to him um, about his experiences at Uber and what was sort of that inflection point and how did they decide they needed it. It was really sort of the idea of doing things better together. And they kept adding the service in more and more cities and they were seeing more and more friction in terms of the product teams, the executive teams. And there had to be some sort of connective tissue. So he was a team of one and sort of described that value of what you can get above the line with one person here are all the amazing things you could get below the line uh, you know, if we added X you know, number of heads. And that's sort of how he was able to scale that. But in the book, we also have at the end of each section, three tips to get started. If it's in the business and data insights, which is pillar one, customer market insights, which is pillar two, and process and practices, the operating model, and pillar three. So we recommend to folks like focus where the biggest need and opportunity is. Don't try to do all three at once understand where the biggest pain points are 
and get some quick wins. You don't necessarily have to have a formal team in place. Like you said, there may be people doing this already. Try to understand where you can get some proofs of concept going, get the wins, elevate that to the decision makers and show how much more scale and impact you could get by building that out. I like that line of thinking, get some quick wins. Show how, even if you don't have a dedicated product operations team yet, you can bring your company value by adopting some of these product operation principles into practice. Yeah, I mean, it's like anything, right? When you show your senior leadership that you're bringing value, they take notice, right? And But even when you get their buy-in, it is important to remember that there are cultural considerations that you're going to have to make if now you start adopting this into your organization. And Denise reminds us of this right here. I learned this too, um, working with companies. I'm like, well, of course the product managers are going to want this. There are some moments of friction where they're like, I have my act together. Just give me a program manager. I don't know what that is. I don't know the difference. So you kind of have to win hearts and minds depending on how open the team is. You may, you definitely want to get buy-in at the top, either your CPO or C, CEO, but you also have some hearts and minds to win at the sort of middle management and individual contributor level. So that goes back to those quick wins, showing the value. Um, we have Shintaro Matsui from Amplitude and talking about how he implemented that at implemented product operations at Amplitude. And it was about making sure that the product managers understand, like, this is for you. I'm going to sort of throw a straw man out here of what our road mapping could look like, for example. But this is for you. Let's use this as sort of a starting point and keep working towards what makes sense for you. We, we don't want to add in layers just to add in layers. This is to sort of help speed up the work and get focused on the work. So many companies I um, consult with, they a common common uh, feedback is that we talk we talk so much about how to do the work and how we will do the work and the process rather than doing work. Product operations in its best form eliminates that and sort of greases the wheels to do the work versus talking about the work. So let's say that you start doing these things. You start showing value, you convince senior leadership that you need a team in place. What kind of people are on a product operations team? It could be the same types of people you already have on your team, right? Um, but now maybe people have different titles, maybe their focus shifts a little bit. If they have certain skills that are needed um, for a product operations role. Okay, but what would those skills be? <laughs> well, I'll let Melissa tell you her opinion on that right here. Similar skills to product management, but you don't have to worry about some things. <laughs> your your customers are internal, so you're going to be focusing a lot more internally there. Uh, when I think of good product ops people, they're, they're great at solving problems, right? Like they want to go and understand what the problem is, but then they also have to have that product mindset of trying to turn it into a system, right? It's not just about whack-a-mole. It's about diagnosing like where it hurts the most and then figuring out how to build a system out of that to streamline it or upscale it. Um, sometimes though, there's like a services component in it. Uh, in some models that we talk about, you couldn't automate something right away, or it may take time to like get to an automation or building a service around it. You might need to bring in some people instead and manage a team of people who are going to go out and do that service for product management too. So I think you have to have a service mindset as well for it. Um, and otherwise, I, I think like, you know, super strong project management skills to be able to, to get this going. Um, understanding value and what value means for product managers is really important. And while we do say like you can bring in people for sure and help train them up around the product management pieces of it, especially if they're like data analysts or something like that, 
um, having a good product management, knowing what product management is, let's put it that way, and knowing how it works is really essential in leading the function. If you're leading the function and you understand it, then you can train up other people into the function who might be more like data analysts coming from that background and don't have any product management. That's what Denise and I ended up doing at Product Labs. We had some great data analysts who were not exposed to product before, but were fantastic at modeling. And we were able to teach them product so that they could do that. But we had the knowledge to be able to teach them what product management does and how we think. So I think that's essential in a leader, at least for the person. And if you're going to have one person doing anything, they got to be able to learn from somebody. So that's where I would say the essential skill sets are. But like you said too, there are some people out there who get into product management. I think it's worth acknowledging that and realize it's not what they wanted to do. And I think product ops sometimes can be the thing that maybe helps you focus more internally, depending on what you don't like about product management uh, to bring those skills up. Or maybe if you are like a fantastic data person and you got into product management and you were like, whoa, I don't want to do this. Maybe you go into the, the data analysis role, right? Supporting product managers, but then you don't have to deal with 8,000 stakeholders or um, some of the pressures that we have as product managers that people do not like to deal with. So when I rolled this out at Athena Health, we actually did have a lot of people opt out of product management once they realized what it was and go into product ops because they were like, I'd much rather be a supporting role and we needed a lot of data help. So we had a lot of people move that way too. Okay. So this is all about where product ops is right now, where we're today, but where are things going? How are things going to evolve? Yeah, Melissa talks about how product ops is evolving in the future and what to expect. Um, and let's go to that right here. I definitely see different trends happening with uh, product operations in the future and what we're looking ahead for. Um, in the past, I think, you know, we were doing a lot of different product operations things and we acknowledge this in the book in different functions, right? Like we had some people were like, oh, I see these problems with user research, let me go do that. And sometimes we have research ops doing that. In other areas, you know, like Denise saw Incision, it was like, hey, we need some help with the data part, we need to go do that. Sometimes you'd bring in somebody to help with the processing governance or somebody in your team gets delegated to be that role. Um, and it wasn't really bringing all these things together in the past. And now I think we're seeing that this is something that teams need, but we also need to treat it almost like a product itself, right? And it can't just be a bunch of random people doing uncoordinated tasks across the company. We really need to think about how product operations kind of goes together so that our customers are the product managers. And I think in the future, we're gonna see that more is that we consider a lot of these functions as, first of all, product operations, and two, as things that need to be managed and grown internally. So. I'm really looking forward to as well to see a lot more, um, you know, automation come out of a lot of these tasks. I don't think that product operations needs to be like a gigantic team of people, um, but I do think we need somebody to be like the product manager for product managers and think about how do we bring that to life in our company, in our context, and how do we want to run these things. Um, so that's a really, you know, important role to play. And I think we're going to see that pop up in more and more companies and it's going to grow into something where it's almost like product managing internal tools for product managers. Now, early on, Michael, when I'd asked you what areas exploded over the last few years, you mentioned AI, artificial mm -hmm. intelligence, and AI very well may have a place in the growth and evolution of product ops as well. Here's Melissa to expand on that. AI could have a great spot in product ops. Um, there are some softwares out there that are using it really, really well. Like one, one of the ones that I really like is Dovetail. 
because it's now one of the things we talk about in our customer market research pillar is having a repository for research so that everybody can access it and see what has been done with customer research. And what Dovetail is doing is layering on the ability to generate insights using AI out of that to get people to pay attention and hone in on things that are trending or things that are new. Um, and I think that's a great use of AI. And I think if we use AI in those ways, it can arm us as product managers to be able to get to those things faster. It doesn't replace the work. Um, right. And I was actually talking to Teresa Torres about this literally just a little earlier. There's some AI stuff out there where I'm, I'm not super excited about, um, where people are trying to use AI to replace all of customer research and they're treating the AI as the customers and they're interrogating them like they're customers. I think that's a dangerous thing to get into because you're never going to learn from your customers um, by asking a computer about it because the computer is not the one using the software. So I I'd caution against that type of stuff. But anything that helps us aggregate or get to insights faster that were generated from a, you know, in a good way, AI on top of that could be awesome. Man, this is all great stuff, Mike. Definitely a good product ops primer, I would say. Yeah. Well, you know, the book they wrote, I would say that's that's really the primer, right? You consider this conversation to sort of be the teaser, <laughs> a little appetizer. and uh, But you should definitely go and check out the book from Melissa and Denise. Again, it's called Product Operations, How Successful Companies Build Better Products at Scale. There's so much to learn from it. But if you want a big takeaway of what to expect, that one thing that you can expect to learn, well, Denise and Melissa have some thoughts on that right here. It's not rocket science. And it's just really about honing in on what your company needs. And people will come to us like, where do I start? It's like, I don't know. I don't know your company. I don't know your needs. So you're going to know best where the biggest pain points and challenges and opportunities are. And that's where you'd want to start. Start small. Prove it out. Um, but it's completely within everybody's reach. I'd say like it, it, there's a lot that can go into product ops. The book is designed to help you figure out where to start, right? But also give you a vision for the future and what it could be. So we really wanted to make it something that was practical. There's a million case studies in there as well. So it's not just me and Denise talking about what we've seen. It's it's like over 25 other product leaders uh, and product ops people talking about what they do in different companies. And we just want it to be a place where people can learn and start thinking about how does this apply to me and how can it help me focus on product management and making the best strategic decisions that I can make. All right. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. A big thanks to Melissa and Denise for all of this. And that's going to actually wrap us up here for today, our first episode of 2024. Yeah, and you'll have to let us know if you like the new segment, the product news segment. We're going to keep doing that, but give us your opinion on that. You could you could email me if you want at mike at productcollective.com or hit us up on uh, LinkedIn maybe. But, but yeah, we've got lots more for you coming at you next week. Uh, until then, though, for Michael Saka, I'm Mike Belsito, and this is Rocketship.fm. <laughs>